Um, it's so good. Uh, yeah. Appreciate it, man. Mediocre with a side of okay. Um, it's just simple obedience. And it looks like something small, but God uses simple steps of doing what he told you to do to do great things. Um, the scripture, I was so baffled uh, and renewed and moved while we were there with Oscar. When they don't have land to serve people, they just begin to pray and God provides land. And when they would need um, food, they would pray and God would bring along partners. We're actually right now trying to text him back and forth this morning. Oscar's in the States trying to raise some support for the ministry down there. He's in Denver, actually. We're going to try to bend his arm behind his back to get him down here uh, on, our, on our good side of Colorado um, as soon as we can. Um, but they prayed, and God answered in faith. And I began to look at God, the, the faith of what they're doing down there. And... Uh, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How are they going to hear unless somebody goes? How are they going to go unless someone sends them? How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel? Like faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How are they going to hear unless somebody goes? And I start to look at this, this dynamic, and, and we say this in the church. I've repeated it from this pulpit. When it comes to missions in this church, we either go, we either send, or we are disobeying. You're either a passionate goer, a passionate sender, or you are in disobedience to the great commission that the Lord has put upon you as an individual and us corporately as a church. God is going to bring about saving faith in the nations because somebody's going to be humble enough to give up their plans and to go. And to serve and to preach and to pray. So I, it got me in the spiral about faith and I want to uh, with the time left, I, we're, we're, we're going to get in the word. Y'all, y'all still got a little bit. You can, y'all want to get in the word? Y'all good for that? Or are you done? All right, good. Well, let's keep, I'm, I'm going either way. Uh, all right, so if you've got a Bible, um, we read earlier in Hebrews um, chapter 11 and verse 6, uh, 1 through 6. And it started here that, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not th- things not seen. Hebrews eleven six, For without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would come after him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek after him. But then I get into this, like, this other verse in verse 4 where it says, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That your faith can continue to communicate and ripple long past the point at which you cease to be on this earth in bodily form. That your faith can still speak. And, um, And so I started to wrestle with what it means visualizing people in Guatemala having the kind of faith to step forward in which they did. And seeing the faith in Oscar reminded me uh, of some people in situations that we've been walking through in the Bible and reminded me of people in church history. And it just was, it compelled me, right? Like it, it kind of made me revisit my own faith and where it is and dust some parts off of it that are maybe uh, 
being ignored. Um, here's maybe a lead-in story, and then I'll give you an idea of how I'm thinking about this. Uh, I've been watching a little bit of the Olympics highlights. I'm not watching the whole Olympics. Nobody got time for that, okay? But I've been watching the Olympics, and I turned it on to a uh, women's water polo. And I'm all in, all right? And do y'all know what I'm talking about? Who knows what women's water polo is? There's no horses. No horses are damaged. They come in, and these women are wearing like rugby helmets, earmuffs. I have no idea why. I mean, is there elbows happening? I, I don't know why they're basically wearing these swim caps with earmuffs. And they tread water for four days. They just in there like treading water. And so um, to advance the ball, they're swimming like normal, but they're just like a baby seal hitting the ball forward. And I've, I've never seen women's water polo. And so I'm trying to figure it out. They hit it like a baby seal, and then all of a sudden, after treading for an hour, they come up like a dolphin, and Nolan Ryan, this ball, threw a soccer net. And I, I was like, this sport is awesome. And I started, so I'm watching this thing, and they're swimming, and the whole time I'm watching it, I'm just asking myself, at what point would I drown? It's like our team used to have 11 players, but there's one down there at the bottom at Davy Jones' locker. He didn't make it, right? And so it's like, at what point? Like, what are we, five minutes in, and then I'm just going down, right? And so I see, I know how to swim. They know how to swim. But seeing someone on a next level, actually, and, and you see greatness. Somebody operate, like they're a human, I'm a human, but they're operating at a level I'm not operating at. And it compels me. Like instantly watching that, I wanted to go swim. Right? Like if you ever watched a sport, you watch basketball and then you want to go play basketball. And when you see them operating at that level, it compelled me to want to get into the water. It made me want to come play. Like I want to give that a try at like two and a half foot deep water, right? And this is, this is what it's saying when it says, though they died, they still speak. There are saints mentioned in chapter 11, but by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Joseph did this. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, by faith, by faith. And that when we come to the scriptures and we see them operating by faith, it invites us into the waters. It invites us into the waters. And I never knew how terrible I was at something until I watched others operate in greatness at a different level. So I want to talk about faith in the Bible briefly. It's going to be a sermonette, but we're going to get into it. And I want to not just talk about what Hebrews 11 is saying here in the text, but I actually want to look at a particular person in the, in the scope of church history and talk about what he does, and, and maybe that might invite you as well into the water. Faith is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints look through in faith to the things that God provided that they might walk with God, they would know who they are, know who God is, and know how best to do life. So you think about it, God told them to build a temple, and through the temple, by faith, they looked forward to the mediator, a temple was a mediator between God and men, 
They would look forward through the temple to Jesus, who would be the mediator between God and men. They looked through the high priesthood, who offered sacrifices for their sins, and they looked forward in faith through the priesthood to Jesus, the great high priest, who offered not sacrifices of lambs, but offered himself. They look through in faith to the kingship of David and they look forward to the king of kings and the Lord of lords that was to come. Even we get into Abraham, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. See, sometimes we think they operated in one way that we are not operating. Their faith looked forward to Jesus in anticipation the way we look back in faith to the cross of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the grave, our faith looks back to an historical event the way they look forward in anticipation of God providing Jesus. Are you tracking so far? You know exactly how that feels. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation has God's second coming where Jesus comes to judge the nations and we know how he's coming, but there's some things about that that we may not know exactly how he's coming, right? That's how the Old Testament saints looked forward. They understood he was a suffering servant, but they didn't understand that it would be a Roman cross. So the same way they looked forward in anticipation, now we stand here looking back in faith to the cross of Jesus Christ and looking forward to his second coming when he's going to make all things right. No more sin or crying or death anymore. We operate and we live in the tension of faith. Just like how Abraham believed God. I love when Jesus is trying to teach people about what faith is like. He says, consider. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither spin nor toil. And yet, they are Solomon in all of his glory is not clothed like the lilies of the field. Consider the sparrows. They don't reap nor sow. And yet, your heavenly Father provides for them. That when Jesus is teaching people... To press in by faith, it is not a mindless activity and it is not blind faith. It is actually a thinking sport. That if you're going to believe God, you must consider the evidence by which God has laid down. Our faith, opposite of what the world does, is not blind faith, it is evidential faith. We see the evidences for God in his word and in creation. And we press in because we consider as Jesus invited us to consider. We could go into Jude, which we taught uh, a year, four years ago. God knows how long ago. Okay, We taught the book of Jude here in our church. And Jude comes in and says you've got to contend for the faith. Because lies abound. It's called social media, right? It says you've got to contend for the faith. So then you get into this thing about a summary of Mark. And I started to consider of all the options of which Mark had been teaching us. In Mark 1, 14 through 15, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, people responded to, pre- responded to Jesus' preaching in faith. Mark 1, 16 through 20, they come follow Jesus to become fishers of men by faith. People in 1, 32 through 34 are bringing sick and demon-possessed people by faith. The leper at the end of chapter 1, comes to him in faith. The paralytic had homeboys that drug him on mats, and it says that Jesus saw their faith in taking someone to Jesus. And he responded by making them well. Chapter 2, 13. Levi left his tax booth to follow Jesus by faith. In 2, 18-22, we fast by faith. Sabbath, later in chapter 2, by faith. In chapter 3, by faith, the man with the withered hand 
stretched forth a hand he had never used. And then it gets into this, this one that I've not recovered from. When Jesus heals the one, um, the woman with the issue of blood, it says that she reached out, and we taught this here, with Bible in her heart, believing who Jesus is as the Messiah, she reaches out in a very particular faith, and it says that her faith made her well. But the word that it used for whole or well is the word saved. It saved her. The same thing that we say faith saves you is the same word to use if faith made her whole again. Then her faith is like right there. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, is walking with them. They find out Jairus' daughter is dead. And Jesus says, "Have don't be doubting, believe. Look at how she just had faith. Her faith is going to cause Jairus to keep walking with Jesus such that his little girl is going to be raised. Faith has this contagious element to it and your faith pushes the rest of us the same way that your doubt and your fear-mongering is a stinking wet blanket on a church when we break faith with our spouse what are we doing when we break faith with with our contracts or covenants if we were being unfaithful and so there's this way in which um like our faith as a church family is connected and like you like you stir me and i stir you to be the best version of you the version that god intended for you when he created you and that you need other people that are constantly just like shoving you in the right direction like you see them playing water polo and you just want to get in the water more. Like I want to serve like some of you in here serve. I want to love like some of you in here love. I want to pray like some of you in here pray. Do you hear what I'm saying? Our faith moves us that way. And if there is someone for me in church history that this just, that this just captures that though he is dead, he's still speaking to me. And inviting me to go into deeper waters. It's, it's a guy named George Mueller. Okay. Uh, George Mueller uh, lived in the Victorian era. He was born uh, in what is now Germany. He was Prussian in September 27th, uh, 1805. By age 16, by age 16, George had landed himself in jail. He already had a criminal record. He had blown all of his father's money on drinking and gambling. This was, this was pre-cannabis days. Um, he had a record as a thief. Uh, he would go and go into like hotels and stuff and stay there, run up a bill, and then leave. Um, this is equivalent in our, we have this phrase in uh, English called dine and dash. And so he did a little of that until he gets arrested. He was such an alcoholic that... Uh, when his mother died when he was 14, he was out partying. The next day he woke up. You don't have a hangover if you just pick the bottle right back up. So he goes hard the second day. It was like two days later that he found out that his mother had died when he was 14. Um, God would take George, though, from this irresponsible youth to someone that is unbelievably responsible 
for the lives of thousands of orphans and many coming to Christ. But he started out as a punk kid. Jail did not reform him. When he got out, he went right back to the world. His relationship to his father was really strained. His father was a lawyer and had money. And so like a lot of parents, they try to figure out, how can we fix my kid? So they send him to a Christian school. I know nobody does that today. But they try to throw George in a Christian school. And he's thinking, this will be a pathway to like a comfortable lifestyle. He'll get a career path. He'll get going in the right direction. Um, But contrary to that, he's just at college, he's just shady. He would buy books for him. He would sell books so that he could party and drink. He had a group of friends that they put together like a road trip to Switzerland. It was Euro trip before Euro trip. And George says, I'll be the organizer of that. And so George gets all the money. He forges the documents for, so his, his friends can get their passports so they can even take this trip to Switzerland. And then even amongst his friends, he charges them more than he himself pays so that he didn't have to pay. Just straight level shady. They take this trip to Switzerland. They party it up the whole time they're there. And at the, at the same time, he's backstabbing his friends. Something changes in 1825, though. In 1825, George was invited to, like, what we'd say is our house churches. It was basically a Bible study prayer meeting. In, in those days, you couldn't just have a Bible study where you, like, went through it. So they would read sermon manuscripts because they regulated Bible studies and stuff like that. So a big emphasis was on reading a sermon and praying. 1825, he has a friend that invites him to church. He goes to a dorm room, and what is powerful about this is, up until this point on campus, George is known as the person, foul-mouthed, that mocked Christians every chance he got. Like, this is the one person you wouldn't want to come to Bible study. And that's exactly who God wants. So he goes to this thing and experiences in prayer the power of the Holy Spirit And he said after that he was converted and that all we had seen on our journey to Switzerland and all the former pleasures are as nothing in comparison with that evening. He gets radically converted and his heart is instantly turned to the mission field. He wants to go serve God in missions. Um, So he has moved his school. He was going to school in England. He has moved to England But he had a problem with the mission agencies. They had conflict. A lot of the missions at that time would go into massive debt in order to send missionaries. He read the Bible and he felt as though it was sinful for them to go into debt to send missionaries. So he had a conflict of interest with how they were running things. Furthermore, he gets sick and so he retreats to the countryside and soon finds himself pastoring a church of 12 people that would soon become, in just a short period of time, nearly 300 people. George, at that time, didn't know how he would be taken care of or how he would have money. And so he began to do something that would be the mark of his ministry for the rest of his life. George prayed. Because he said, I don't feel it's right for me to continue to live and taking my father's money. And as radical as this sounds today, he cut himself off from his father's support. I know it's popular for us to live with our parents till we're like 50, okay? 
30 was the old, was 50's the new 30. Okay, so, like, I, I get that. So think of how radical it is. He's got no money, no place to say. He's just serving God, jumping in with the church. God answers that prayer by giving him um, a job tutoring American students who wanted to learn German because we don't speak languages good. All right? And an orphanage allowed him a room where he could stay in the orphanage. Now, that looks completely accidental for us and coincidental, but that, that is God sovereignly putting a man who's going to run thousands, who's going to take care of thousands of kids in an orphanage. It's not accidental. God's teaching him to pray and seeing that he provides, and he's moving him into an orphanage so he gets a heart for kids. God answers his prayer. He's pastoring a church, and in, um, though in 1829 he wanted to become a missionary, he ends up pastoring. And in 1835, God put it on his heart to open an orphanage for the poor. Now, at this time, orphanages were only for the rich. I know that's really hard because everything you know about orphanages comes from movies. Okay, But orphanages were basically for the Bruce Waynes of society that had enough like money coming in that you could pay the orphanage to take care of the kid until they were grown. There were virtually no orphanages for the poor. And there was thousands of kids that were on the street because of disease or famine or other things that happen. And if they, if you've ever read like Peter Pan, anybody read the actual book, Peter Pan? Nobody? There's like three of you. Okay, good. It's way more dodgy than the movies. All right. Like I think the Lost Boys are literally robbing people and Tinkerbell tries to kill folk. Okay. Like Peter Pan's a little edgy. Just want to put it out there. Because you get into this Victorian era, you just had, you had street rats running the streets. And if kids weren't stealing or doing hood rat stuff with their friends, they ended up in, like, basically child labor. It's a lot of the child labor laws that we have today go back to this because just like in China where they make your computers and your shoes and stuff, little hands can do amazing things for cheap. I know that's then, not us, right? And so they had this incredible, like, industrial revolution thing happening, and a lot of the kids ended up in mines and different stuff especially poor kids that couldn't afford to be raised or educated otherwise. And so while he's pastoring, he sees this opportunity. Now, here's the thing about George. He had decided that he was not going to take any regular salary. He understood from the Bible that the Bible says that it is his right to have a salary as a minister and as a leader and all these things, but he foregoed it. He also said, we're not going to have a bank account. We're not going to have a trust fund. We're going to have prayer. And I'm not going to directly go to a person and ask for help. When we need something, we're going to ask God by faith. Now, that being said, George did believe in means. That is, he would broadcast the needs that they had in their newsletter. Say, we've got a need here. And God's going to meet it. We just have no idea how. But he would never go to a rich banker in town and say, I need a million dollars for this place. God donated for him the property, the money to clothe and feed, beds for the kids by prayer. When they needed something, they prayed. 
and God would move his people to give. This is unbelievable. The money by the full time, uh, so by the time that the orphanage reaches its height, they are housing 2,000 kids at once. I have five kids that I can barely keep fed, right, <laughs> and clothed. Like, I feel overwhelmed with, like, the few punk kids I got, right? 2,000 kids at, at one time, not total, at one time at Ashley Downs. The property in today's money would have costed $14 million, and God just got it. There are unbelievable stories that I don't have time to tell you all of them, but I want to tell you a few of them of where God radically answered their needs by prayer in faith. And my hope is that it would just draw you a bit. So um, one day they wake up as the orphanage is developing and they have absolutely no food for breakfast for the kids. And so George, they all get dressed. Uh, they all come to the table and they were like, what are we going to do? It's like, we don't have any milk. We don't have any food. And it says, we're going to pray and God's going to provide. And so George gets all the kids together and they begin to pray and give thanks to God for what he's going to provide for the kids. Knock comes out the door. Baker opens up. Says, last night at 2 a.m., God woke me up and said the orphans are going to need bread today. So I got up at 2 a.m. and I baked bread from 2 a.m. until now, and I've got bread. Can you use it? And he turned, George turns to the kids and says, kids, God's not only provided bread, he's provided fresh bread. And they put it before the students. As it, that is being distributed, another knock comes out the door. The milkman, back in that day, the milkman had to carry canisters of milk, was pulling the milk on the cart outside. The cart breaks, and he says, because it, they don't get all the preservatives that your milk has, um, that milk is going to ruin. Do you think the orphans would take it? George said, absolutely. God provided for them by prayer. Another story. Uh, they had a furnace, uh, like a boiler, and it was behind a brick wall, and it goes out. And it was dangerous because if, it, if the right part of it catches flame, it would blow up, all right? Apparently, they built heaters back in the day to be time bombs. So they had a brick behind a wall, and they begin to pray about it. Winter is coming, and I don't know if you've ever been to England, but it rains, rains like every day. It's just kind of a, it's Seattle. It's kind of miserable most of the time. When it is nice outside, it's beautiful. And then the rest of the time, it's just dodgy, okay? And so they, they just got bad weather coming in. The cold's coming in. And he's like, the children are going to be, the children are going to be cold. And so they begin to pray, God... Would you um, bring the workers here and would you have them, um, well, one, God, would you hold back winter in such a way? And this is how George prayed. He's like, would you hold back the cold air and bring warm air so the workers can do their job and that the, the orphans won't be cold? God, would you, would you compel them without us having to ask them that they would work throughout the night so that it would be taken care of and it would be no danger to the children? See, here's the thing. George got into this verse. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19.
Here's what George believed when he prayed. God, you wrote your word. You said all my needs would be taken care of. George took God at his word. See, my fear is that we do a lot of Bible study that never results in praying in faith. That we get head knowledge that never turns into faithful praying. God, hold back the bad weather so they can work. God, give them a heart to work through the night without us asking them. The men show up. The winds change and a warm air settles over them. As the men begin to work, one of the foremen comes forward to him and says, me and the guys talked. We just feel like we should just knock this out. Can we just, we're going to work through the night and we're going to get it done. George saw that as an answer of prayer and he said, my God will, shall supply all your needs according to riches and the glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. See, all George did was he took God at his word. Believes that when you pray, God's going to do God kind of stuff. There's two reasons, and I can go over and again. Uh, one other story I think is really fascinating is that a guy hears about what he's doing with all these orphans, and he gets compelled to send him a check. And he sends him a check in the mail, and it's for a huge amount of money, like un, like large check. And he says, set up a fund. I want it to go to the orphans. Go down to the bank. Put a trust fund. You can live off the interest. It's, it's like thousands and thousands of dollars which would be even more in our money because of, uh, what's that thing called? Inflation. And so, uh, so all this stuff, George writes the man back, says, me and my family and the orphans have learned to live by faith. And we've actually grown to prefer it. You, meaning what, you are meaning well by sending me this check and to serve them, but by it, you would make me depend on a bank account instead of God. And he mailed it back. And he mailed it back. Two things. George was peculiar in the best kind of ways. He was strange, if you would. One thing of why he did the orphanage the way that he did it was that he wanted to care for orphans and he wanted to love them as he'd been loved by Christ. The other was that he wanted to show that God works through prayer in faith to do things that are not done any other way. You have not because you ask not. I wonder how many of us in heaven will come to the end of our lives and God will reveal how many things he intended to give to us that were available to us that we do not have because we asked not in faith. You have not because you ask not. He wanted to prove that God answers prayer to a skeptical world that looked and says the only reason the church, the church is all about money, the church is all about this, the church is all about that. He yanks the steering wheel and says we're going to lean so hard on God that if God doesn't show up, we don't got a chance. He's like Paul who wanted to offer the gospel free of charge and when he'll write the church, he says, I as a minister of the gospel, have a right to being taken care of. You don't muzzle the ox, the salary and all that. But I'm setting it apart because I don't want to be associated with anything that would lessen the glory of God among the Gentiles. So he, George passed up even what the Bible would say he's owed 
in order to display God's answering power to prayer. Now, what's awesome about the last chapter, well, one thing, people would read in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever read in Corinthians where it talks about the gifts? There's the gifts of like prophecy and speaking in tongues and you know, all those charismatic ones make Baptists uncomfortable. And then they like, you get the like acts of service and then you get administration. Well, one of the gifts is the gift of faith. And people began to come to him and say, you, got, sure, you have the gift of faith. You are this verse. And George said, no. Which is curious. Because people said, when you pray, like in faith, God is answering. And George says, I, am, I do not have a unique gift of faith. I have the faith that every Christian has available to him. He did not want to embrace that he was gifted in that way because what would happen is the average Christian would look at his life and say, sure, he's a superstar. He's some sort of like superhero of the faith. Sure, that's for him, but it's not for me. As They would discredit the fact that the Bible is teaching that the kind of miracle working faith he experienced was available to all of us. Now, I disagree with him. I think he really does have the gift of faith. I think he's, but at the same time, I totally understand what he's getting at. Because Christians will sit in pews and say, surely that's a super Christian. And I'm just like, I'm like Sam's Club, like generic equate brand Christian. And they will, Satan will use that to talk them into doubt. Do you hear what I'm saying? So I get what he's saying, but that doesn't mean that he still isn't gifted in that way. Because when you're gifted in the gifting of teaching, it's just use your gifting to spur other people to follow Jesus more seriously. And I think that's exactly who he is. Listen, gray hairs, listen to me in here. The last chapter of his life, at 70 years old, he finally gets to go to the mission field. 70. Some of y'all in here are young. 70. He spends the next 17 years of his life in the mission field, which he had wanted to do in his 20s, but that God had had him so serving the orphans that he was not released to do that. At 70, God releases him and he plunges his life in the missions. During that time period of 17 years, he would travel 200,000 miles. And it's not even on like Spirit Airlines, all right? I get back pain just driving four hours, right? 17 years, 200,000 miles. He preached to more than 3 million people. This dedicated last period of his life was the most ferocious for the gospel. So talk to me, old people. What's the last chapter going to be for you? Come on now. He would tour the U.S. four times, India twice, Australia, the colonies. In some, he would preach to 42 countries, including China and Japan. Listen, young people, if you're in here, there's no retirement in the kingdom. Is that too real? Are we, are, we, are we done? 
Listen, middle-aged people with careers and jobs and futures and five-year plans. There's no retirement in the kingdom. Set a vision for your life now that God's going to use absolutely every ounce of you. Do not pull the car into the parking lot of heaven in pristine condition. Dukes a hazard that thing with like one wheel on fire, one door missing, dinged up. It's a Subaru, y'all. Stroll that baby in there. Pour yourself out for the kingdom. Be raggedy by the end. 17 years at the end of his life, millions of people hear the gospel. Tell me your retirement plan. Tell me, church, how you're finishing strong. Young people, get a vision for your life. That Because here's the thing. At the same time, some of us who are younger in here are not making it to 70. Let's be 100. We're not making it there. And if you don't serve God now, you're not serving God. I didn't say this a, a week ago, a week and a half ago. Buried a student in Oklahoma. Never made it out of his 20s. He came to our college ministry, heard the gospel, heard the message, heard the invitation. He wanted to chase conspiracy theories. He wanted to play video games. He wanted to smoke drugs. He wanted to be in the, in the band scene. He wanted to be in the hardcore music scene. We love this guy. He was a friend of mine. I love this kid. Doesn't make it out of his 20s. Never goes on mission with God. Never believes the gospel. Never serves God. Some of you are not making it to 70. And you either serve God now or you're not serving Him. And for you that have made it already further than expected. With every year that's left for you. Use it. Use it. Get in the stinking water. Go play. Do something great for the kingdom. George Mueller tells me, compels me to finish strong. Doesn't he you? He's died in faith and yet he's still speaking to me. He died in Bristol, March 10th, 1898. His procession was attended. The whole town shut down. By the end of his life, he had served over 10,000 orphans. 10,000 orphans. He would, tell, he would put a Bible in their right hand when they would age out and they would go into adulthood. He'd put a Bible in their right hand and he'd put a little bit of money in their left hand and he'd say, if you... Pay attention to what's in your right hand. God will always provide what's in the left. I wonder how many missionaries around the world came from that orphanage. How many pastors, Sunday school teachers, business people. I wonder, even in here with a few Anglo-Saxon descendants, some of your ancestors may be married into these lines, that the 10,000 plus lineages that were changed because one man prayed. One man had faith. When he died, they carried his casket through Bristol and it, they mourned at, because all of England lost a father. All of England lost a father. 
the power of George Mueller's life and the power of the Hebrews chapter 11 saints in scripture is that by faith they took God at his word. I want that to be our church, amen? I want that to be me. Can I pray for you? And then we're going to go into some gospel communion stuff. If you maybe bow your hearts and your minds, I don't know what the step of faith number one is for you. The step step that's, that's directly in front of you. I don't know what it is. It's between you and God and it's different for each of us across this room. But maybe as we've gotten a little bit in the word and we've gotten a little bit in history, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit could take what's been said today and give you the courage to just lean a little bit into that step. Would you take it? I don't know if it's a conversation with somebody about the gospel you need to have. I don't know if it's a sin you need to repent of. I don't know who you need to apologize to. I don't know if it's a switching of a career Something that God has been nagging you about, but not forcing you to do it. Whatever that thing is, I want to pray for you to take it. For someone here, it may be salvation that you call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. It says those that believe in their heart and confess with their mouth will be saved. I don't know if it's a step so radical that you're going you're gonna to need us to pray and fast alongside you to even, even begin to get after it. But let's be a house of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for sending Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross that my sin and my shame and my brokenness might be nailed there and I could be set free to live in faith and do all kinds of crazy stuff because you're with me. God, I thank you for those in Hebrews chapter 11 who came before us that though they died, they're still speaking to us and compelling us and challenging us to get in the water. God, I thank you for George Mueller. He's imperfect, he's flawed. And yet he reminds us that you're a God who answers prayer. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that whatever step of faith they need to do, the conversation they need to have, the sin they need to repent of, reconciliation, God, I pray in faith right now that you would give them a sense of urgency to be about that step. God, I pray that you would bother them and haunt them until they do it. God, I pray that you would tailor the things that's happening in their lives so that the next step becomes irresistible. Father, help this to be a house of prayer. Help this church to be a church that operates in faith knowing that it's you who pays the bills and you're truly the shepherd. Father, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus, everyone say Amen. We're going to transition our time of communion. Toby, would you come and teach us about that?